We have struggled a lot in our relationship, and it's been really difficult for both of us at times, and it's been the most transformative relationship of my life. I'm a different person because of John, in a really good way. And I think both of us being in this work together and understanding what we're doing it for and understanding the distinctions and being able to hold each other accountable for the commitments we've made and creating this consequential environment, it's allowed us to grow as people in a way that is really unusual out in the world. Helping people build ambitious and satisfying careers, businesses, and lives. This is the Influence Ecology Podcast. Now, here is your host, John Patterson. Good morning, good afternoon, good evening, wherever you are in the world. I'm your host, John Patterson, the co-founder and CEO of Influence Ecology, the leading business education in transactional competence. Broadcasting from Ojai, California, this podcast features case studies, stories, and lessons from business owners, executives, and entrepreneurs who found real solutions, real results, and real satisfaction, not only with work, career, and money, but in every area of life. You'll hear how these ambitious professionals found that those who transact powerfully thrive. Our featured interview is with John James and Lauren Cato Robertson, co-founders of the C-Section Recovery Center near Dallas, Texas. They are massage therapists with a specialized practice that focuses on clients suffering from C-section recovery. Their assertion is that in modern times, we often interrupt the biological process and don't account for the impact of that interruption to our children and to our own bodies. Through their study with Influence Ecology, they have discovered their own entitlement and conceit and have not only learned to specialize and accept help from others, but have also overcome their differences to develop a solid, powerful, and working partnership. In their words, they both grew up each other. I have with me today two of our members, John James and Lauren Cato Robertson, and want to give you a moment to introduce yourselves, please. My name is John James. I'm the co-founder and the CEO of the C-Section Recovery Center here in the North Dallas area. And I am Lauren Robertson, and I am the other co-founder of the C-Section Recovery Center in North Dallas. And I'm very excited to be here, John. You're welcome. There's so many different things that I think we could talk about today. One I'd like to start with is a little bit about your offer in the marketplace, because I love what you guys do. I like how clear and specific it is. So if you could tell us about what you do and give us a sense of the kind of offer of help you are to people. We are a group of massage therapists that work specifically with women that have had a C-section or and are having trouble recovering from the surgery. I've been in business here in Dallas for 25 years and real early in my career I recognized a correlation between this surgery and trauma women were having and realized that I could actually help them recover. So that's our specialty is we work with women that, well, there's 1.4 million women last year had C-section in this country. So we work with those women that are having trouble in recovering, and we focus our efforts specifically in that area. Great. Lauren, anything to add? 
here on my soapbox a little bit in the predominant narratives out there in the world, we think it's normal to surgically birth a baby. One of the things we run into is the women who need our help often don't realize that they need our help. And so one thing that influence ecology has been really helpful with is we can articulate that really well and get help to the people who need it. That's really good. Since you mentioned soapbox, anything you'd like to take a moment and soapbox about regarding what's going on in the world around C-section? There is a lot of good that comes out of that world. But what I have learned in doing this and in speaking with people actually in the hospitals, in the medical industry, OBs, nurses, and anecdotes from our clients, we hear very similar stories over and over again, which is that we are turning the birth process into a commodity, essentially. It's just not the best for mother or baby. It's really good for a doctor who needs to get home to take care of his child or something. You know, we don't know what circumstances they're dealing with, but it seems unnecessarily rushed and pressured that these women are being told that they need a C-section when they don't always need a C-section. And and some women do need a C-section. And we see a lot where our client would have died if they hadn't had a C-section. So the line between what's needed and what actually happened has gotten really blurred. John? Well, I certainly agree with everything Lauren says. One of the things that we're seeing is that the, the birthing process has been rushed. And, and Lauren alluded to that. And one of the things we're also seeing is that the number of doctors that are equipped to handle a birth that doesn't go exactly as planned are, are diminishing because they're doing C-sections before it becomes complex. And we're seeing a reduction in the number of doctors. We have a doctor here in Dallas that we work with that is amazing, but his practice looks very different than other practices. That's in my soapbox is just the whole industry's kind of got the wrong narrative to produce an environment where a woman can birth her baby completely. And the, the other part of my soapbox is this, is that a surgical birth is exactly that. It's not actually a birth. There, there's all sorts of neurological cues and all sorts of wonderful things that happen during the vaginal birth that cues the baby that to the baby that the baby's been born and to the mother that she has had a baby. And all sorts of things happen that get skipped when a baby's surgically removed. Whether that removal was needed and or not, it, it doesn't matter. It, it still skipped a part of the biological process. And that's where we come in as a company we're quite good at helping women simulate that completion. Our work has successfully been able to, as best we can, help cue her body to behave as if it actually birthed the baby. I'm going to come back and address your specific offer in a moment because I think what you guys do is pretty phenomenal. In the world of, quote, massage therapists, end quote, and I'm going to come back to that, But as we teach it, you and I are biological, linguistic, and transactional, and that many, many people suffer where they don't account for their biology. And when you talk about the sort of biological cues that occur through a natural birth and the importance of that, I don't know that many people have ever had the thought that that matters. I'm listening to you now. I've never had the thought. Do you find that people don't know about that? And and if so, then how does what you do teach people about that or perhaps deal with it if they didn't get the opportunity? Yeah, absolutely. 
what we call this, and, and we didn't actually invent this phrase, but it's what we refer to in our industry as an incomplete biological process. And it applies to all sorts of things in life, life and death, babies, and all of the developmental milestones that we have that as a biological species, we expect to, to go through on a non-conscious level. And so when a woman conceives and an embryo implants, essentially a tape starts playing of this is how things are going to go. It's instinct. It's written into our tissues. And so baby starts growing, cells are dividing, things are happening, baby's getting bigger. And when that gets cut short, the baby is supposed to get pushed through the, the birth canal. Mom is supposed to experience that as part of the completion of the birthing process. And the baby actually goes through a thing where cranial bones are squeezed and remolded and their positions are changed. And, and like John said, neurological things are happening and it, and it all gets very complex. But essentially, those things complete that tape. And when that doesn't happen, when we cut the baby out, not only is that tape incomplete, but they have to rip open the amniotic sac, which creates a differential in pressure where the baby is essentially first experience in life is dealing with a case of the bends because they've had such a, an intense drop in pressure. It should only be reserved for situations where it needs to happen. And to answer your question, John, you had asked, is this a surprise to people? And the answer is yes. Most of the people that we bring this up to are just like you. They're like, wow, I hadn't thought of that. Most people are not real confused about it after we present it as an idea, but they haven't thought about it. It's the indifference that exists around surgically removing a baby opposed to birthing one is profound. Well, I love the term incomplete biological process because as we teach it, when we talk about that you and I are biological, and again, that we are often not accounting for being biological. For those who've never listened to us say anything about that, we're often talking about that we're somehow above our biology. We somehow can move in ways that are counter to our biology, but we are a biological organism that has been developing in the environments that we've been developing in for quite a long time. And I'm curious for both of you, not only in C-section work, but in other work as well, or in other ways, do you observe other incomplete biological processes in other domains of living? We have a tendency, and I'll speak about this country in particular, I think we have a tendency to interrupt all biological processes. And to be really honest, I don't include thinking the medical profession did this to us. I think that our patient base has asked for it. And the only reason I think things are changing is I think the patient base is changing. But I think that we can't have an infection without a medication to eradicate it. We can't have cancer without trying to cut all of our body parts off and or medicate the hell out of ourselves. We can't seem to have a biological process that completes because everything gets diagnosed and everything gets interrupted. I think it's a part of our culture right now. And I think that's part of what we're dealing with is this not just happening with C-sections. It's everywhere. It's a symptom of people not understanding what a biological process is and understanding how their body works, I think. Yeah. One thing I don't think we're going to do here is solve the cause of the issue. I don't think any one of us could 
say why it exists in terms of its complexity. It is as any system is. It is a complex. You and I are, belong to complex adaptive systems, and here we are. It's now 2017, and we have evolved to eat what we eat and think what we think and do what we do and so forth. And pretty much we've removed ourselves from any kind of experience of the wild, <laughs> right? So in just doing that, we have really interrupted the biological processes. But for all of us, because we've all been involved in this study so far, I think we have the opportunity to recognize that we have been removed from the biological processes in general. And when we can account for that, then some other kind of cool stuff happens. We tend to eat better and live better and get outside and go play and sleep better. So I want to move away from this topic in just a moment, but any final comments about all of that? I think that there's a lot of different whys as to why this is happening. Just like you said, we're not going to get to that answer. But one of them is we don't know how to transact. Women don't know their rights. They don't know that there's authority being used against them. They don't know that when they're in this situation that they have other options. And so it's just a matter of better education and having other women around. And, and again, going back to the wild, we used to have an entire community of aunts and grandmothers and sisters and children, all modeling this behavior of how you give birth and how you raise a child. And we're so spread out that we don't have that anymore. There are situations where you need to have a C-section. There's a reason this surgery exists, but the, the rate at which it's being done, I believe what I've read is that in the 70s, the C-section rate was 7 to 9%. And at one of our local hospitals in Dallas, for instance, that rate is encroaching upon 40%. I'm not totally convinced that that rate wouldn't have risen anyway as our health as a nation has declined. So I do think that while it seems artificially high, that it, it probably would have raised some. But I don't think that it's a complete artificial it's being done more than it needs to be done. And we have a hospital in Miami that in 2015 did nearly 51% of their births by C-section. Same year, we have a hospital in Albuquerque that did 9%. What I love about your offer um, is that I know dozens of people who are massage therapists. I used to live in Austin, Texas, and I used to joke that Austin, Texas was the massage therapy capital of the world. And uh, I don't know if that's true or not. I just used to joke about it because it seemed like everybody that I knew was an artist and a massage therapist or a waiter and a massage therapist or a dog walker and a massage therapist or a whatever the case and all the different variations of massage therapy. Now, that being said, I've never understood how massage therapy as an offer would be a very productive or profitable offer because there's only so many massages one person can give. So here you are and not only are you not an ordinary everyday massage therapist. You're quite specialized. I have a practice where you're doing very, very well. And I'd love to hear about your journey from the massage therapist and waiter or whatever the case may be to now, because you give hope to people who are in an offer and have never considered specializing in the way that you have. And I'm here not only to hear your story, to have your story impact other people and have people think, oh, wow, maybe I should specialize. 
I do this, but maybe if I really specialize the ways those guys did, I could take my practice in in a whole different way. So I'd love to hear anything you'd like to say about your journey from the beginning to where you are. If you'd like to know more about Influence Ecology and our approach, you can register for free 30-day guest access. During this time, you can test drive our interactive webinars, online learning system, and private mentorship. Program participation is by application only, and successful participants earn candidacy into our advanced program tiers. Our members are an international assembly of ambitious professionals, business leaders, and executives from a variety of countries, industries, and cultures. To find out more, you can find a link in the show notes for this podcast at influenceecology.com forward slash podcast. That's influenceecology.com forward slash podcast. Or in the U.S. or Canada, you can text the word ambition to 805-262-9008 and we'll send the registration link right to your mobile phone. Again, text the word ambition to 805-262-9008. Also in our show notes, you'll find all the links to websites, books, or special downloads mentioned in this podcast. My 19th year in business really comes up as an important year, and that is the year that I really begin to evaluate, what am I going to do my next 20 years? And in that evaluation, I was looking at what all we treated in our clinic that year, and it, it was unbelievable. We were doing sports injuries, fibromyalgia, some post-surgical issues, head injuries, we were treating horses that were had colicked. We'd had some success there, and I was traveling with a race car driver. And it was all over the place, and it was really tiring. And as a massage therapist, and anyone that's listening to this that does what we do, they're shaking their head going, this is a very physically taxing business to be in. And the only thing that can make it more physically taxing than seeing as many people as we see would be to have them be 10 different issues in one day rather than one. And what I began to realize that year is that if I was ever going to get anywhere, I was going to have to not be everything to everybody. And I also began the process of considering that maybe I wasn't that good at being everything to everybody. And that's where Influence Ecology got on board. And what you guys helped me realize is that we were going to have to specialize at some point. And, and that's, so that's how the, the idea started or the realization started. Can I ask you just a quick question about that? Because you said, I realized I may not be good at everything. For some people, that would be a big struggle to come to terms with that because some people think that they're good at everything. Certain personalities think they're good at everything. Certain people believe that they're good at everything and they're not. So anything you want to say about what you dealt with and just coming to terms with that you weren't good at everything? I still struggle in that. I still think often that I'm really good at a lot of things. But what I realized in that process, for example, would be that I was applying that more to the clinic that I was to me at first. And what I mean by that is uh, our clinic might be fantastic at treating children and adults, but we can't be really good at both of those because the environments needed for those two things are very different. For example, if we have a clinic full of babies, they're screaming the entire time, and then you try to treat an adult that needs to be in a quiet environment. That's very difficult. So from that standpoint, that's kind of how it started for me. I still kind of held the dialogue that I'm still great at all of these things. Now, at a later date, I came to realize that not only was I not, there was actually people that were really closely available to me that were not only better at this, but I should do business with them. I should bring them into the enterprise. 
All right, good. Thanks for that side journey. So you began to realize that you couldn't do all these things, and then what happened? I looked at the things that I thought we were really good at and equipped to handle, and I eliminated the things I didn't want to do as a specialty, and that chiseled it down pretty quickly to a short list. And then when we looked over post-surgical type issues and working with pregnant women, and we started to realize that area was something that we had a lot of passion for. And we also had a lot of skill there already. And the third part of that that immediately surfaced is this realization that we were likely talking about something that no one else had done. And we began to research that and realize that that was in fact true, that there was no one else in the world that had done this. Somewhere in there, as we're just talking about it, the C-section recovery center just popped up and it was cellular at that point for us. The first C-section case we saw was in 1992. I was treating women who had trismus. Trismus is an acute jaw lock. They were coming to the office to see me because I was not afraid to work inside of their mouth with my hands to manipulate and work on that tissue to try to get them to open. So again, trismus is an acute jaw lock where their mouth is locked shut. And we had this lady come in, Mary, and Mary was not only locked shut, but she was so locked that I couldn't actually get my fingers into the roof of her mouth to do the work I would usually do. The physical therapist that was involved in the case had gone to call the doctor. She would to begin to prepare the process of her going to a surgery to have that surgically released, which is not a fun surgery. And while she was out of the room, I opened the chart and it happened to fall open to her surgical history. Mary's surgical history said three C-sections, one hysterectomy and a laparoscope to remove the scar tissue from the other surgeries. I guess you could say a light bulb came on, and I just had a thought. Could these be connected? I proposed that possibility to Mary, and Mary was, she was inclined to do whatever we needed to do. Uh, She had lost 60 pounds at that point, and only about 30 of those pounds did she want to lose. So there was a talk of a feeding tube, and she was in a, a very serious situation. And I started a process at that point. I put a book from a teacher that I had classes with. I put one of his books on the table during the session, and I began working through some scar release techniques, her C-section scar, and of course there was three C-sections and two other surgeries. I worked through that scar tissue, and less than 15 minutes she opened. That moment's so important because it proved a connection, the connection that we now know a lot more about, uh, the connection between the pelvic floor and the cranium. Because not only did she open, I talked to her a few years ago, she never had a problem again. And so that was kind of the aha moment that kind of lingered through the years that later on had us go uh, the C-section recovery center. That's it. Like that's almost a moral imperative for us to specialize in that area. That's really great. Did you come to find another causes or other breakdowns in the body? We did. We realized that, I mean, I'll kind of go through a list of a few. We realized that the feet were largely controlled by how flexible and or functional the pelvic floor was. So in the feet, we're talking about plantar fasciitis and hammer toes and all sorts of Achilles tendon issues. And then above that, uh, we were looking at anxiety because of the effect that the surgery had on the diaphragm, which then wouldn't move properly and would produce anxiety for people. And then we can go above that and look at TMJ and jaw problems. And honestly, John, we could go on and on and on and on about 
what is connected to that. And what we've been able to do in our clinic is to not only propose that as a possibility, but produce an opportunity for those things to be reversed or remedied through the type of work we're doing. It gets very complex because every person who comes in here comes with a history before their C-section. And so one thing I, I like to point out to clients is that often, while, while we do consider the C-section to be a big problem, part of what it's doing is amplifying all the problems you already had. And so when we look at someone, we're not just looking at how did the C-section affect them. We're going, okay, you had this many car accidents and you had this and that. And often there's 20 or 30 different factors we can't possibly decide which one was the one, but it's about treating the whole body and every system. And one thing that happens when you have a stressful event like that, where you've just had your abdomen cut open, they're cutting through skin, fat, muscle, nerves, lymph vessels, organ tissue, you name it, they're cutting through it. And then you're expected to go home and take care of a newborn. And what that does is activates your fight or flight response, your sympathetic nervous system. And when that is on alert on a pretty constant basis, your body stops taking care of itself. You stop digesting, your blood pressure goes up, your heart rate goes up, your lymphatics stop operating as efficiently, as, which means your body starts accumulating more waste and you get tired and you get sick. Wow, lots of stuff. All right, well, so many things that you're pointing to speak to the biological and again, as we teach it, we're biological, linguistic, transactional. So you continue to point to where we're biological and perhaps where we're just simply not responsible for that. But I'm also interested in how influence ecology has helped you guys because you've been studying with us now for... I'm between four and five years, I think. I'm right at four and a half. You know, you're in our one of our most advanced programs. You've been around for a while. So why are you participating here? What are you learning? And how is it impacting what you do to help people? I think of how you guys say that you, you hold a mirror up to us and show us how we're transacting. And for me, that has been invaluable. I did not realize where I was behaving in an entitled way expecting a company to take care of me, expecting the people around me to take care of me. And for me, it's been an incredible growth process. What it has really done is that it's allowed me to be there for my clients in a way that I wasn't able to prior. It's allowed me to help people change the narrative they have about themselves, the narrative they have about others, and actually help them transact so that they get the best results out of their treatment from us. The work that Influence Ecology has taught us around personality has been really helpful for us. Uh, we always know who we're dealing with as far as personality. So when a patient comes in, we immediately begin the process of asking the question to ourselves and between us, uh, who do we have here? Do we have an inventor? Uh, and do we need to communicate to them in a way that's suitable to their personality? And so that's one thing. I'm a massage therapist. I've been locked in a room working on people for 25 years. I'm an inventor personality, which as you guys teach it, uh, the inventor has an ego. And part of my ego was that I was a good businessman. And what I learned, I was not a very good businessman at all. And one of those reasons being that I didn't allow anybody to actually help me. And what has changed for me is I have help. 
I have a lot of help and I love my help and I've gotten to where I have only moments of resistance to the help that I'm getting. And I, I don't think I would have had that without working with influence ecology and especially over a long period of time and really studying. There's so many things that contributed to that. One is that uh, it required me to specialize to get the help I needed. If I had continued to be all things to all people, it would be really hard to know what help I needed. So you mean you were being all things to all people in terms of your business as well? In other words, you wore all the hats at your company? Absolutely. And also just the lack of specialty kind of makes it hard for a person as a business person to recognize the needs of the company. I had a lot of bad habits of the inventor personality, and one of those is moving from my idea or straight to work in action, skipping the part of the transaction cycle that would have made the transaction work without a problem. But influence ecology has made a big difference in teaching me how to accept help and to find help, find people. There's so many things that Lauren's so much better at than me. I'm proud that she's a partner with me. I also feel relieved for a change. In the beginning, I had some resistance to that, but I, now I don't feel that way anymore. I feel, I feel relieved. I feel like I have support. I sleep better at night, to be really honest. Lauren, you're snickering over there. Anything? <laughs> <laughs> and you guys, by the way, didn't you didn't you guys struggle a bit, or do you still struggle in your in your relationship and your your different personalities and stuff? <laughs> I'd love to hear about that. We have struggled a lot in our relationship, and it's been really difficult for both of us at times. And it's been probably the most transformative relationship of my life. I agree. I'm a different person because of John in a really good way. And I think both of us being in this work together and understanding what we're doing it for and understanding the distinctions and being able to hold each other accountable for the commitments we've made and creating this consequential environment, it's allowed us to grow as people in a way that is really unusual out in the world. We're really solid. I agree. There were times of it was the most difficult relationship that I have. And that's not the case anymore. It almost feels like we went through a plane crash together. And here we are. We're, we're like the only two survivors or something. Like, that's what it feels like a little bit. We really had to get over ourselves. We badly needed each other's help. Both of us are really good at what we do. And we needed each other's help. And we went through a lot there for a while, and that's not where we are anymore, and, and we haven't been there in a while. This relationship stands on new footing, new ground. The commitment stands on new ground, and our business environment is responding well to that. People can feel that. They come into our clinic. They can feel the commitment that we carry here. They can also feel the consequential environment. We don't employ consequence here. The, env the environment holds it. People are going to grow, or they're going to probably need to find somewhere else to work, if they're not willing to grow, they're probably not the best patient fit for us. And that's because Lauren and I did it that way. Uh, we both grew each other up in a way. And Lauren, you had said some things that your dad had told you about all of that. You care to comment on that? When I first started FOT, I, was I don't remember what elements of it I was describing, but he went, so basically it's the how to be a grown-up class. <laughs> and <laughs> Like, I didn't even really know what I was getting myself into at that point. It was pretty early on. But I went, yeah, I guess it kind of is. And I think my dad has always kind of watched me not be a grown-up. I was raised by my mom and stepdad, and they did 
an amazing job as parents. But my orientation around adult responsibilities was that somebody else was always going to take care of that for me. And what I learned was that that's not true. (laughs) It may be that I transact for that help to have someone take care of me, but I can't just expect it from people. And certainly not the people closest to me because that's just not fair to them. And it really doesn't serve my aims to put that responsibility in someone else's lap without having some sort of agreement around it. How to be a grown-up, that has certainly emerged from this work for me, that I am a very different person from when I started. I had my parents over for dinner one evening some years back with Kirkland, and we were all sitting around talking, and, and I think my dad said, now, how do you guys meet, and you know, how do you start your business, and so forth. And I told a story that's, that's kind of famous. I'll tell the story from time to time where I said, well, I called Kirkland and Kirkland said, hey, dude, how's your money? And I lied and said, oh, it's awesome, right? And when I said the part about I lied and said it was awesome, my dad leaps across the table and he goes, aha! <laughs> I knew it wasn't great or something like that. I was taken aback because I was in the middle of my story and I was trying to make the point that Although my money was fine, and it really was fine, but I was I was so used to lying and saying life was great, even though that I was making an okay income, and I was 70 pounds heavier, and I didn't have any savings to speak of, and so forth and so on, and all of that kind of stuff. So it was for me, by the way, also, you know, how to be a grown-up class, and it's, it's a wonderful thing to be in the how to be a grown-up group. I'm glad that resonated with you. Oh, it, it totally did. I don't think it's a surprise to either of you, given you're in one of our advanced classes, but, you know, the number of people that pretend to know what they're doing about their money, pretend to know what they're doing about their investments, to pretend to know what they're doing about reading financial spreadsheets and so forth. Nobody knows and everybody pretends they do. And there are a handful of people that do, and thank God we can all hire them. But for the most part, the rest of us are all saying, you know, everything's great when it's maybe not so great. And I was... And I think you grew up in the same way where I needed to declare it was great and have it be great because I said so, not because I had some evidence. And while I found some value in that, I found some real value in that because it really was for me fine. But what I had never done is I had never looked at how much money I need or why and how much I need now or when I'm 50, or when I'm 65, or when I'm 90, and am I on track? And the answer to that question, or any question like it, like the similar kind of question about my health, or my identity, or all kinds of other conditions of life, while I could say they were fine, the truth was I was screwed in pretending otherwise. My stepdad, if he listens to this, is going to go, yeah, that's Lauren. I mean, I my whole life, I've had a narrative of, I'm fine. Don't worry about me. I'm doing great. And another thing you said was your dad leaping across the table. And I think my parents, it's not like they didn't try to tell me that I was going to have to be a grown up one day. I remember my mom sitting me down and being like, you know, you're going to have to make money, right? (laughs) You realize that's a thing adults have to do. And I think just because it was coming from her and not from an outside source, I didn't really believe it. I just thought like, oh, that's yeah. Okay, sure. (laughs) We'll see. And there was almost like a manipulation there of, I know if I get in a big enough breakdown, you're going to take care of me. So I'm just not going to take care of myself. 
Well, I want to sum up by saying what I love about watching you guys and your journey is you've specialized, you're highly focused, you're working on something you're passionate about, you're making a very good living, you're continuing to study, your life is working in so many different areas where it used to be fine or okay, as we talked about, and now it's really fine and really okay, measurably so, and I want to give you any final comments about your own transactional competence and what life is like now, perhaps compared to what it was like some time ago? For me, I feel like I am in a place where I can see things really clearly and I can see others really clearly and solutions come to me faster. I don't spend a lot of time in breakdown anymore. I used to be able to spend a whole day, a whole week in a breakdown. Now that's just not necessary. Not only is it not necessary, it's not helpful. It doesn't accomplish anything. And so I'm able to operate from a really objective place that I have never lived in before. It's a peaceful place to be for me. I think back early in my career, and I had a lot of big ideas about uh, fame, and maybe not as much fame as just success and financial success, and I continually ran into a wall. And that wall was this, is that if I was going to create all of this completely alone, I continually ran out of gas. Even if I had some help, I wouldn't really give people credit for for the help they were providing me. So I would continually have this cycle which involved this crash where I was physically, mentally, emotionally crashed. And what's different now is that since I'm not doing this alone anymore, I don't have the crash. We recently added a CFO to our company. It's amazing just that alone, how that removed some pain out of the process for us and obviously made it more likely for us to be successful. But things like that, we've operated so long without key players that in the past, it continually created a physical, mental, emotional breakdown for me. And now I still have some really big ideas I think they're actually going to happen. And I think that's what we're seeing now is this company is getting better and better and it's doing really well because it's not just me anymore. And it's not just me and Lauren now. We we do not have a personality on the transaction cycle that's not extremely well represented. And I'm not not just a space to fill. We have the best that we can possibly find and afford in those spaces. That's probably the biggest difference for me. All right. Well, John and Lauren, it's been a pleasure to speak with you today. Thank you so much for all you've contributed to our listeners and to pleasure. Thank you, John. Thank you. We enjoyed it. In today's Guru Talk, we listen in on a webinar classroom led by co-founder Kirkland Tibbles on the topic of specialized knowledge and how this unique and uncommon knowledge is so much more than just a kind of focus. Here's the interview. I want to just add something to this notion of specialized knowledge in terms of demonstrating it accurately. Specialized knowledge is a function of education. In fact, if you study with us for very long, you'll get into the condition of life education as specialized knowledge. What does that mean to have specialized knowledge? Some people confuse this step and all that goes with it as some kind of differentiating factor that you bring to an already known offer in the marketplace. And I want to suggest that, in fact, what you are doing 
when you demonstrate specialized knowledge is you are recognizing and you are demonstrating an accurate kind of specialized knowledge that isn't easy to find, it's difficult to attain, and holds other characteristics that give you an advantage. Notice that over time, specialized knowledge starts to become more common and more common, and it is incumbent upon us to always be working on the next kind of thinking, accurate, grounded education that we can continually demonstrate that not only differentiates and separates us from other people in the marketplace, but is simply not available anywhere else. John, you used a fantastic example with C-section recovery, but your company, Influence Ecology, has done a fantastic job of demonstrating what we mean when we say accurately representing a completely, if not radical, way to think about how to satisfy your aims. Influence Ecology is working in a deliberate way to hold, and I'll even go so far as to say own, the whole space and category called transactional competence, even in the broadest sense of transactionalism. It's highly specialized education you cannot get anywhere else. This is highly specialized help. Your job is to make sure that when you are transacting, that you are accurately demonstrating it. That means you've got to show it to people. And that's where the 13 steps, and especially moving from step six down through step nine, help you do that. We help you demonstrate just how valuable, how scarce and, and helpful the education that you have and can demonstrate is for those people who need your help. So pay very close attention to this. John is touching on something that is that's not appreciated until well into our programs. And I want to ring this bell for you and offer you this opportunity to look at specialized knowledge as education that you demonstrate accurately to your specific customers. In our next episode, we interview Ross Clennett, a high-performance recruitment coach in Melbourne, Australia, whose successful journey did not begin so well. I had a, a wonderful upbringing, two wonderful parents, three sisters. I was head prefect at school. I went to university. I was president of the student union. I completed my degree. I went traveling, came back, established a very successful career. And then some things happened which were unexpected and I don't think I was really prepared for. If you enjoyed this podcast, we ask that you share it with others. You can share it from our website at influenceecology.com. You can subscribe on iTunes or any place you get your podcasts. If you haven't yet offered a rating or review, I ask that you take a moment, go to iTunes and let us know what you think. Thank you for another great episode of the Influence Ecology Podcast. I'm your host, John Patterson. I'd like to thank our guests for a great interview. In our show notes, you'll find links to connect with them and all the links to websites, books, or special downloads mentioned in this podcast. This podcast is made possible by the brilliant work of the Influence Ecology staff, mentors, and members around the world. We're grateful for co-founder Kirkland Tibbles, and it's 30 plus years of specialized study and practice that make all this possible. 
Episode producer, editor, and music supervisor is Jason Kelly. Podcast copy and show notes editing and links by Carol Gregory.